coming to you from the Eminem Studios in beautiful Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee. Jabaloo Enterprises is proud to present the Health and Humor Show with your hosts Maureen Sullivan and Kevin Michaels. A mix of humor, education, and entertainment that we hope will amuse, educate, and enlighten you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Health and Humor Show. Um, for the week beginning April 24th, 2022, this is your host, Maureen Sullivan. We have a special interview for you today. So it's, it's a jam-packed, informative, and entertaining segment here. So we want to give a shout-out to our sponsors, UKHealthRadio.com, home of Health Triangle Magazine, and HamiltonRadio.net out of Trenton, New Jersey, with CEO and founder, Jean Piero. Okay, for this special interview, um, we'd like you to welcome Kate Roseborough to the platform here. She is the host of Sugar Bombas Podcast, a show designed for moms and caregivers of type 1 diabetics. So tune in and learn the latest statistics on the prevalence of diabetes worldwide, symptoms and signs of type 1 diabetes in children, 504 plans for school-aged children, and what key education points all parents and caregivers need to know about type 1 diabetes in their children. Without further ado, welcome Kate. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome Katie Roseboro to today's episode of the Health and Humor Show. She is the host of Sugar Mama's Podcast, a show designed for the moms and caregivers of type 1 diabetics. Katie, welcome to the Health and Humor Show. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. I'm excited to talk with you, too. I am so excited. It was a random crossing of paths on LinkedIn. So shout out to that platform. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be here as we spoke off um, offline that um, I am a certified diabetic educator, but I deal mostly with the adult population and mostly with the pre-diabetic where your focus is type one diabetes, which becomes mostly a, a child um, situation here, a child condition, but as we'll find out, it's not definitely limited to just a child population, but it is so important here. And I just wanted to remind our, uh, our listeners because they, they, I write a monthly column on diabetes. And so I just grabbed some statistics off of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. And it said currently, this is the, their latest statistics, um, 37 million people with diabetes, which now represents 11.3% of our population. And I think we could both agree that number is probably not even accurate. <laughs> mm, yeah, probably yeah. not. Is that type one and type two or just type that, two? That was a general here. That was a oh, general. general. And then it went another 96 million or 38% of the population are pre-diabetic. Mm. And then 1.6 million are um, confirmed with type one diabetes as much as 64,000 being diagnosed annually. So I don't know if those are statistics that sound familiar or yeah, to you. Yeah, they, they sound familiar. I heard um, I kind of accidentally ended up on a live Instagram session with a uh, with a physician the other day. I mean, I was just listening to him talk, but he was giving stats for type two. And he said something that was just astounding to me that um, uh, about 50, even a little bit more than 50 percent of our population has either type two diabetes or prediabetes. And that was just he was just talking about type two. But I was that's just crazy to me. That's a right. staggering number. What's yeah. interesting, and, and I'm, I'm going to go a little off topic here, just uh, my interest here with the pre-diabetic population is just pointed out 
the high numbers and the fact that so many people aren't even aware that they are quote unquote pre-diabetic mm-hmm. because the numbers, the, the cut points, if you will, of an A1C level and, a, and an impaired fasting blood sugar, so many physicians, many of them that I work with um, are not comfortable addressing it as a quote unquote diabetic, pre-diabetic situation until they cross over that path of a confirmed uh, lab test result. And in the meantime, we have an entire subpopulation that's that's being compromised. And that's what's very concerning to me, where we could take lifestyle behaviors and, and you know actions and that and maybe avert the the uh, condition from you know exacerbating that. And so um, I'm I'm on the little uh, quote unquote war path, if you will, to like let's make it talkable. And I do know from the diabetic educator standpoint, there has been some discussion, and I'm, I'm curious to see what you might think about this, that instead of calling it pre-diabetic, which meaning it's not there yet, that's how mm-hmm. some people hear it, if we call that stage one or mm. stage one diabetic, mm-hmm. you know, and I know that type one, type two and that, but just to let people know, this is the time that you should take it seriously. It's not quote unquote pre-waiting to happen. Something mm-hmm. is already happening. Yes, I so I think that in both populations, type one and type two, um, that just a just a regular finger prick to check to check blood sugar levels at your annual physical um, or a child's wellness visit. You know, get out the glucometer, do a finger prick, and check the blood sugar levels should really be part of the the routine. You know, along with taking your blood pressure and getting your oxygen saturation and your weight. I mean, I think that they should do it, you know, considering how prevalent type, especially type two diabetes is in the country, I feel like that should be part of the regular, the regular screening. Um, and I mean, I have to have blood work done for a thyroid condition that I, that I have a couple of times a year and they check my glucose then. But other than that, they're not checking it, you know, when I, when I come in regularly. Um, and you know, maybe that's just my doctor's office and it's standard practice everywhere else, but I know they don't do it at my daughter's, um, pediatrician and so many type one diagnoses are missed because, um, you know, a kid comes in, in DKA and is incredibly, incredibly ill. And that's just not the first thing that comes to people's mind, even, you know, physicians, even good physicians, you know, ones that are. Um, just extremely attentive can can easily miss it and diagnose it as something else. So, um, so yeah, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but I would no, I definitely want to push for, um, and I've talked to my our pediatrician about that too. Like you should really make this part of this the regular regular well visit. I mean, nobody likes a finger prick, but it's quick and it's it's a good test to see kind of where everybody is. And the irony is, if you really delve into many insurances, they actually. And an annual screening and a preventative screening will do that. But a lot of a lot of people just don't ask for it. They don't really know that it's available. Um, mm-hmm. I do know that, and I think COVID pivoted a lot of what I'm going to say here. I do know that years ago there was a lot of health screenings on a corporate level, where they would hire an outside agency to do, as you said, check height, weight, blood pressure, and a glucose finger stick. And I, I think COVID unfortunately put a lot on that on the back burner and it's very slow and fingers crossed that it will come back into mainstay, you know, um, treatment and that there was a lot of people being identified. Um, I personally worked some of those quote unquote health fairs and we ended up sending people to the hospital 
Mm, and they yep. were they were coming down from their desk. You know, they were working. Right. They were sending them out by ambulance. I mean, it's it's surprising because I mean, at least high blood pressure, not so much from a diabetic. So much can go wrong in terms of your blood pressure can be so high, quote unquote, the silent killer. You you become so accustomed to not feeling well that you think that not feeling well is normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do. I do not. I know that from an, an ER emergency room background, people go, I don't feel any different. And mm-hmm. then when you delve down and dig deep, they go, well, I haven't felt right for years. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. And unfortunately, our culture, you know, we're such a busy, we're such a busy people that even if we don't feel well, most of the time, we don't take the time to go um, figure out what's really going on to, to get at the root of the problem. Very well. We're, we're, Very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, well, I do want to dive into this here because you are my guest here. And, and unfortunately, sometimes I just take the platform myself. <laughs> so you can go, hey, this is my interview. <laughs> oh, no, I was just thinking about the question, though, about the calling it, you know, d- diagnosing it in stages. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I guess that's an interesting thought because there, especially with type two, you know, there are, are very clear stages where, you know, early stages, it can usually be controlled with diet and exercise. And right. then as things progress, you might need to be on a more um, aggressive, um, you know, medication routine with some oral medications or possibly even insulin. And, and yeah. so, um, you know, kind of breaking it up into stages would be a, a good idea to kind of differentiate between, I mean, with type one, I guess it's, there's not a whole lot of room right. for stages right. because it progresses so quickly and, and you kind of get into that um, life threatening situation. Um, within, you know, weeks or months. Um, so it happens quick, but with type two, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Um, Mm -hmm. so I did want to ask you, I I need to hear the personal reason behind this, um, delightful podcast, because I'm sure it's close to home here. It's not just, I decided to talk about this one day. It's a personal experience for you. So enlighten myself and our listeners here as to how this all became a, a passion and a pursuit. Absolutely. Um, my daughter, Sarah, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in August of 2020. So we were smack dab in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. And then we got um, this life altering chronic diagnosis topped, um, you know, thrown on top of us as well. So it was an extremely traumatic event for us. Um, uh, I, I spent the better part of the first month or two crying. <laughs> and not knowing what I was doing. And, um, and she did too. It was very, tr- it, it affected the whole family, um, which I think is something that people don't, um, you know, talk about enough and, and take into consider and, uh, you know, take into consideration enough, you know, all the way down to the brothers and the siblings and the grandparents and everything. So um, it was very isolating. I think it's a very isolating disease anyway, because, um, you know, all of a sudden, your child that you thought was, you know, healthy and going to remain that way for, for all of time is now dealing with this chronic medical condition that they'll carry with them, uh, until there's a cure, hopefully one day. So, and then, you know, it's isolating in and of itself, but then it's isolating, especially in the middle of a pandemic. So there wasn't, you know, the normal JDRF that they normally have all sorts of events for families to get together and meet and just, you know, fellowship and bounce ideas off of each other. And and none of that was going on. You know, my husband and I couldn't even be in the hospital together when my daughter was diagnosed, we had Mm -hmm. to switch off and nobody could come and visit. So it was just hard. It was hard to deal with period, but it was definitely hard to deal with 
in in those circumstances and so as the months went on um, you know a couple months went by and I just felt this you know I became part of these social media groups where you kind of communicate with other parents of type 1 diabetics and I just really saw um, the impact it has on especially parents um, you know and I just felt this huge urge and this huge pull to in some way you know help them empower them encourage them equip them I am no expert in the field of type 1 diabetes but I do have a medical background um, I have my doctorate in physical therapy um, and I've been a licensed physical therapist for the past 13 years um, so in that sense you know medical terminology and learning about medical things and how the body works and you know anatomy and physiology behind things that does come very easily to me so I felt like um, you know I may have caught on a little quicker than some people as to you know how this whole system with the pancreas and, and right. how the insulin and all the other things affect the body um, and I just felt like I could use that to help other people um, just because you know we 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 were managing fairly well even you know just a couple months out um, and we don't, don't hear me wrong we have some really bad days in fact this past week has been really bad <laughs> it's been really horrible in terms of like blood sugar numbers sometimes diabetes just throws you for a loop um, but I just felt like um, with my heart for parents of type 1 diabetics and my medical background, I could do something with that. So I love podcasts. I should probably say that. I'm a podcast junkie. I listen to all different types of podcasts. And um, I found some great type 1 podcasts when we first got diagnosed. But I really wanted to hear the, from the perspective of a parent and really a mom specifically. Um, and just I wanted a podcast that was specifically tailored and catered to parents of type 1 diabetics definitely may i ask how old was sarah at the time she was eight and she's 10 now okay because that that's um it well there, there's not a there's not an easy age for a chronic diagnosis a lifetime diagnosis but i think there are some ages that it just it hits much harder and that when they're aware of what's going on and quote unquote aware of what they're missing or feel like they're missing in their general day-to-day -day or why as you said why i feel different from my classmates and everybody else that's that's an age that would definitely may i also ask what what types of symptoms did sarah have that alerted you or was it just yeah. her? no so she had the classic symptoms for type 1 diabetes she was excessively thirsty drinking a lot of water um, excessive urination was probably the biggest one that I noticed um, we were it was summertime and we were coming home from vacation and we had to stop it was a, about a seven hour drive and we had to stop every 45 minutes so she could go to the bathroom um, and even that was pushing it because she really had to go so excessive thirst excessive urination I did not a lot of weight um, but she's always been a very small petite skinny child so you know and when you see him every day it's not as shocking but looking back at pictures now i'm like oh my goodness she really okay again and bones yeah. yes absolutely and after she got diagnosed and got on insulin and her body was actually able to use the glucose mm -hmm. that was there she she gained like 10 pounds and her you know she wasn't pale anymore there wasn't those dark circles under her eyes that's another sign that we noticed dark circles mm -hmm. and just not feeling good just general malaise um really fatigued um you know kind of sitting around laying around watching tv didn't really want to do much so 
so those were our major signs. Oh, there, there was also a couple of days where she woke up and just felt, went pale as a ghost and felt like she was going to get sick, you know, vomit. And, um, and so that, and so I knew that there was something going on. Right. I just right. wasn't sure exactly what. May I ask, is there a, is there a family history of diabetes in your family? There is no family history of type one diabetes, but on my side of the family, we have a very strong history of autoimmune disorders. Okay. Um, okay. I have two immediate, you know, very close family members that have systemic lupus. Um, I myself have uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, so that's an autoimmune condition. And then type one is an autoimmune condition as we know. So um, no, nobody that I know of, unless it goes way, way back, mm -hmm. had type one, um, but just a, definitely a lot of autoimmune disorders. And, I, and the reason why I, I brought that up is because I've seen, uh, people in the emergency room diagnosed, you know, unfortunately, as you said, like in a crisis moment, it's not just, I don't feel good and here's, here's a prescription. They're, they're in because they're very sick. Mm -hmm. And the first words I usually hear is, but that can't be possible. None of us in our family are diabetic. And that's the key point there because I have a single relative um, and it's not an immediate sibling or anything like that, but there is only one in the entire lineage and she became type one diabetic and she was about uh, Sarah's age, like eight or nine years old. And it just sprung out of nowhere. And I do remember that kind of shock and disbelief of the whole family as if to say, no, we, we don't get that. You know, mm -hmm. we, we get, and we, I mean, I could tell you, we get many other chronic diseases and that whether it's lifestyle choice related or not, but that seemed to be the outlier. The other thing I did want to focus on for our listeners is you brought up very good points on her initial symptoms, the excessive thirst, um, and it might not be a drastic weight loss noticeable, especially as you said, from when you see the children every day, the uh, frequent urination and that, and they kind of merge into what we tell people are your typical type two uh, diabetic, uh, I might, you know, excessive thirst, excessive hunger, mm -hmm. excessive urination. But if you go to a, a younger pediatric population, those symptoms get very interesting and very diverse here and so like you said the routine screening may be something that the medical community really needs to to consider because so much is missed so early yeah before you know before those those complications set in is there something and i can't mm -hmm. you know the argument from the the flip side of you know contained health care is well we can't be testing everybody <laughs> you know so i can hear i can hear both sides as i say this but, uh, you know, I've dealt with people that have uh, children like toddlers and, mm -hmm. and children that can't, at an age, they can't tell you, I don't feel well, mm -hmm. or they can't tell you, I, I'm always thirsty in that. And so they were saying about one, one key indicator from a pediatric population is if your child has previously successfully been toilet trained and all of a sudden is frequently wetting their bed, Yep. It may be an indication, not that, you know, I, the child is resistant to going to the bathroom as much as there's a frequent urination that they can no longer control. Right. The unintentional weight loss that can be picked up in a pediatrician's office, you know, especially when children aren't standing on a scale when they're, they're put on a scale like that. Irritability, extreme hunger, extreme thirst. I mean, the symptoms are vague enough that they could be other things, but they're concerning when you start piecing them together as to what it could be. Right. And I think um, 
I've heard a lot of people too, like during the pandemic specifically, one of the other signs and symptoms is a fruity, your breath smells fruity because your body's giving off those ketones and ketones mm -hmm. smell fruity and um, kids were wearing masks, you know, in during COVID. Excellent and point. so they Thank were, you. That, that was an excellent point. Yes. Yeah, that was being missed. And, um, and then, you know, another thing is, you know, when it, when it gets real serious, like when they're close to being in DKA or already in DKA, their breathing gets really labored and shallow because mm -hmm. they're trying to breathe off all the ketones in their body. And, and that was misdiagnosed a lot as possible COVID symptoms. So, you know, that's, yeah, it can be very, it can be um, misdiagnosed as, as a lot of different things. Um, yeah, even if doctor's offices didn't do a finger prick, they could still check for ketones in the urine. You know, they're doing urine tests on a lot of things. Usually anyway, they could just stick a ketone strip in there. Definitely. So in terms of your podcast, what types of, um, what types of questions do you think your audience needs to hear or needs to ask? I mean, in terms of who you're interviewing and that and who your, your audience is, is there a, not a set, but is there some questions that maybe we can even enlighten the medical community as to, I need to explain it better. I need to make it, you know, a, a user-friendly ex explanation. I need to consider the health literacy of who I'm dealing with. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, as you said, even though we never want, you know, we, we always want to frame diabetes as a, um, as a lifelong condition, but a manageable condition. But you and I both know there are going to be extremes in that manageable that are going to be frightening, absolutely frightening um, to, as a parent to watch over a child. And, and I'm sure feel so helpless that I can't control this. And this is my child. So what can we do as healthcare providers in order to make a more comfortable uh, situation for parents of newly diagnosed type one diabetic children? Oh, that's a great question. Um. <laughs> well, take, take off your medical background because I know you're, <laughs> and yeah. like when you first heard of Sarah's diagnosis, what did you feel? Oh, just sad, sadness. I think a lot of people go through all different, grief comes out in a lot of different ways. And I know a lot of people get very angry, very mad. And for me, it was just, just this overwhelming sadness. I mean, it for like the first year, it felt like there was something literally sitting on my chest chest is just heavy, you know, have just a heaviness. Um, it's overwhelming. You know, you get diagnosed, they, they keep you in the hospital for, a, you know, two to five days or more, depending on where you, how bad you were when you came in, you know, were you in DKA or whatever. Um, and it's just a huge onslaught of information from this is what's happening. Um, this is what life is going to look like from now on. This is how you carb count. This is how you figure out how much insulin she's going to need for each meal. You know, this is just all the things, of course, getting all the prescriptions ready to go. Um, so it's a lot of information all at, all at once, you know, <laughs> they're, they're trying to give you the information to where they can send you home in a 48 to 72 hour period and um, hopefully trust that you're not going to do serious damage to your child because, you know, insulin can even, even if you give a, a slightly wrong dose, it can be, you know, very dangerous for, for anybody, not just a kid. Um, so you kind of, they want, they want to make sure you know, they know, they want to make sure you know what you're doing, but at the same time, they have a very short period of time to educate you on all of that. So 
one of the goals of my podcast is just to um, take a step back and really, you know, kind of dive into not just the information you need to go home and survive, but the information you need to go home and really thrive and live life with diabetes well and not just, you know, enough to get by. You know, I, I want I want my listeners to understand um, the mental health aspects of it. So, you know, I've had people come, come on and, and talk to me about mental health issues, anxiety, grief, things like that. Um, I want people to to understand how how the insulin works and how they can adjust it accordingly to to meet their needs and make the insulin work for them. So I've had on, you know, people like yourself, certified diabetes care and education specialists who can give a lot of that information. Um, uh, you know, it, gosh, we've I've had somebody come on and, and talk about the 504 plan. I did a whole series for newly diagnosed families. I just wrapped up a series for parents of um, teens with type one diabetes. Um, just kind of navigating all of that as kids grow up and enter those kind of formative teen years. Right. Um, I'm getting ready to do a series on the book, Think Like Pancreas. So mm-hmm. um, that will cover the 10 chapters that are in that book about how to kind of use insulin uh, to your advantage right. <laughs> and learn how to make those self adjustments. Um, you know, it, if anything, I, if I think anything is going to be helpful or encouraging to a parent of a type one diabetic, then it's fair game for the podcast, you know, and that includes, I've had researchers on talking about some of the research they've been doing in the type one space, because I think parents want to know about that, you know, what's going on. And if I'm donating my money to say JDRF, you know, where, where's my money maybe going? Like what research is it actually funding? So we've had researchers on. I think, um, I think from a healthcare um, standpoint, Mm-hmm. As you said, I think we we inundate people with too much information, literally at a time that, and I say this sincerely, everybody's probably shocked across the board, some mm-hmm. level of shock. And with that shock comes, I can't even absorb what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And so we give a lot of handouts. And I know personally, I'm not really the best. I need hands on more than handouts a lot of times. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. And like you said, we, we have... Um, sadly, I'm sure a lot of checklists and I have to make sure that I told them this before they leave. And it's not necessarily the best time, you know, because this whole family has just been uprooted on, on, on the calmness that was pre-existing 48, 72 hours ago and sometimes. And that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's a lot, of, a lot of to do with it. I personally can't emphasize enough the need for ongoing support groups of some kind. I can't imagine and I wouldn't want to put somebody in a position that I would send them home with information and that would be that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sadly, I do know that a lot of the primary care doctors, they don't have the time nor the resources to do the education, the teaching that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I personally uh, go to a physician and I, you know, I, and it's an endocrinologist. So, <laughs> I will tell you this conversation and I hope that your eyes don't roll as mine did this when this happened. So when we moved here to Middle Tennessee, I was already certified as a diabetic educator. You would think the connection between endocrinology and diabetic educator would be in sync without mere words. (laughs) And, um, And I came to find out that everybody in this massive clinic 
um, was referred to endocrine for pre-diabetic, diabetic, and, and all related issues, um, all ages, same group. And, but they didn't have a diabetic educator on there. So I, I asked him, I said, I just need to understand because I'm new to the area. I didn't even want to say I need to understand your practice. And I said, I just need to understand who's doing the education because in my previous job, physicians just didn't have the time to mm -hmm. sit down. I mean, they could tell you, but they didn't have the time to really answer all those questions that are inevitably going to come up. And they didn't have that time to do those after hours calls and those support groups and all the ongoing management. So I said, who is doing that? And he kind of got this sheepish kind of like, oh, you're calling me out on something already. And he said, well, we don't have the, we don't have the funding. We don't have the staff. We don't whatever, whatever. And I said, but who like, I'll scale it back. Who teaches uh, an adult about a diabetic medication? I mean, that's, that's basic. And he said, usually the drug rep associated with the medicine. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of looked without saying anything. And he said, well, I know it's not the best, but they do know the medicine. And I thought that's how fragmented the medical care could be. And it, that to me, that's an extreme, but it's mm -hmm. kind of the ongoing normal here, you know, from a, from an adult perspective, um, we tend to go, well, you know, this was lifestyle changes that you should have done and we didn't. So you're a little less active than you should be and a little overweight more so than you acceptable and so here's a pill mm -hmm. and so they get this well as long as i take my pill i can just be fine and it really it needs to be brought up to a sense of things are happening inside your body here and a pill necessarily in and of itself isn't going to cut it you know mm -hmm. and and what i tell a lot of people is that that pill is just it's fixing a number perhaps but it's really not taking care of you overall if you're mm -hmm. just going to become dependent on a pill, because eventually that pill becomes two pills. And as you alluded to earlier, then becomes additional injectable medicines and that. So I'm always right. worried when somebody is told, and even though we're focusing on diabetes, when somebody is told a new diagnosis of a chronic disease, mm -hmm. that should be a global case management, if you will. Everybody should be involved in teaching them what what is interacting with this disease? Is it lifestyle? Is it behavior? Is it diet? Is it activity? Something like that, not just here's that pill. But mm -hmm. I, I, we're probably on the same page for that already. <laughs> we're probably yeah. on the same page. No, I agree. I mean, just working in healthcare and then seeing it from this side of the, you know, the, the table with my daughter. Yeah, I mean, it's really not necessarily anybody's fault. Uh, well, anyway, it's there. Yeah. There's just such a shortage of people. There's so many patients that need medical attention. And there's only so much that a physician can do, you know, and that's understandable. Um, they can't follow you home and hold your hand while you, you know, live your life. So um, I think in a lot of cases, they're doing the best that they can with the time they have and the resources they have. Um, and, you know, in this on the flip side of that is that I you know, I don't have the time either to necessarily like I could conceivably call my endocrinologist, my daughter's endocrinologist every day and the, the diabetes educators that work there um, and ask them questions and like, hey, let's look over these, you know, continuous glucose monitor graphs and see what we can change. But I don't have the time to do that either. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think for me, at least with this chronic medical condition, like I've really had to take it upon myself to you know, there's lots and lots of literature out there on, on type one and how to manage it. Um, 
there's there's good podcasts out there on type one and how to manage it so i've had to really take it upon myself to um just kind of learn how it all works and how i can make the insulin work for us and and that way i can make i can feel confident making adjustments on my own because you know again i don't have time to call every day to ask ask how to do that and the doctors and the educators don't have the time to field every single person's questions on right. on how to do that either so the other thing i and i had asked you before we went uh, on the recording here i do want um to hear your your ideas on the 504 mm-hmm. from from a parent perspective i mean you could certainly yeah. do from a medical perspective but a lot of people obviously aren't going to be familiar with this 504 plan here so i'm i'm going to let you tell them your understanding of it yeah okay so it's personal to you i i don't want to just read the diagnosis and read what it is and give them a website i want to hear how it's helped you does it give you comfort how how do you make it work for you um so i we have a 504 plan in place and i guess i'll try to give a brief description of what that is a 504 is for you know in a in the united states it's for a child in grades kindergarten through 12th grade Um, It's a legally binding document that basically levels the playing field for children with type 1 diabetes and other chronic medical conditions and the like. Um, So it's it's not just diabetes. But, um, you know, I I don't think a lot of people realize that type 1 diabetes, at least in the United States, is currently considered a disability, which I I honestly don't know how I feel about that. Some days I'm happy about that and some days I'm not. (laughs) So um, I go back and forth. But. Um, it is considered a disability and children with type 1 diabetes are protected under several different laws. Um, And a 504 plan is a document that kind of, I guess, gives, um, like I said, levels the playing field. So uh, it it allows for certain accommodations in the school setting. Um, So for us personally, um, in our 504 plan, I have it written that Sarah is her, her, that her cell phone is considered a medical device. Okay. Um, there is not a nurse at Sarah's school, so it is me and Sarah texting back and forth throughout the day on what she needs to do to manage her diabetes, whether she needs to take more insulin or she needs to have some form of sugar to bring her blood phone to us is considered a medical device. It's also receiving information from her continuous glucose monitor. And then I'm able to see that remotely. So um, she's allowed to have that out and allowed to, now with that being said, she's not allowed to be on YouTube or, you know, or playing games, but <laughs> she's allowed to use it to communicate with me to manage her diabetes. Um, we also have it written in there that, um, you know, if Sarah's number is above a certain level, she's not allowed to take a test until it comes below that Um, and then on the same on the flip side if her number if her blood sugar number is below a certain level if it's too low she's not allowed to take a test until the low blood sugar is treated and it comes back up just because your, your mental state is altered when your blood sugar is too low or too high so it's again level the leveling the playing field for her um, what are some other things I have written in our? Well, I know there's usually I, the few that I've seen when I lived in Florida was um, the ability to to as crazy as it sounds the the bathroom breaks and accessibility yep. to snacks. We're in a classroom where they you know like no eating at your desk. You know, that's all I ever remember. And 
So that, I mean, there are some provisions that way too, because the child is in charge. And I know that sounds crazy and I know nobody wants to hear that, but the child is in charge and the child is probably the most knowledgeable person in that classroom about what's going on. Yeah. I think, um, so I think it's important to remember a couple things like for one, the 504 plan is not just a license to do whatever the heck you want, right? You do, you do have to have it written out. Um, now it can be changed. It's a living document, so you can go in and modify it and add things to it and take things out of it. Um, but it, you know, it has to be the accommodations you're asking for have to be reasonable, and reasonable can be defined differently depending on the school that you're at. But um, so it's it's not a just a get out of jail free card. Um, it's also important. To you remember that, um, ooh, what was I going to say? It was an important fact about the, <laughs> the 504 plan. Well, I know that, um, uh, well, uh, as I brought up, the bathroom breaks, the accessibility to snacks that might not otherwise be, you know, and, mm-hmm. and meal times, I guess, too, have to be. I know I've seen a few that had very select. They have to have the ability to eat when, when they feel they need to eat. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they... They absolutely have to treat their low blood sugar. I mean, that can be an emergent situation, so right. they have and to like be allowed said, to. I do yeah. remember. I do remember one that, and it sounded so crazy until we all had this aha moment where uh, this child had her own. Uh, uh, I will call it an emergency backpack, mm-hmm. and it had you know immediate and fast acting glucose. But to the untrained mm-hmm. eye, it looked like a pack of you know a, a package of snacks in that, where mm-hmm. all of this became quote unquote medical treatment and they're just yep. like come on come on I'm like no this is legit and and right. depending on you know what's available in that I mean you're going to see some foods that and drinks and and they're going to go you, you got to be kidding me this is medical treatment and I'm like yes it is you know it yep. is yeah and I will say for anybody who's interested in like if they need to write a favorite for or they need to present their school with one the American Diabetes Association has a great 504 template on their website that you can easily find just go to their website and search 504 uh, you know in the search in the search bar but um, that's the template I use to help draft my daughter's 504 plan I think another really important thing because a lot of schools you know they don't have the funding to maybe have a nurse there mm-hmm. and so a lot of schools come back and say to parents we don't have the resources here to help your child like we're we're not going to be able to help them administer insulin we're not going to be able to help them um uh you know check their glucose levels if they're using like finger pricks and that is that's illegal like they're there that's not allowed um you know because of the laws that diabetics are protected under they have to make accommodations. So if they cannot afford to hire somebody to help, you know, that child manage their diabetes, especially if it's a really young child, like a kindergartner or child in first grade, then they have to bring in a healthcare professional, an endocrinologist, a nurse, a diabetes educator to train the staff at the school to help that child. Okay. Yes. And even if a school receives even just $1 of federal funding, then they are required to adhere to a 504 plan. So that includes pretty much every private school, because even private schools usually receive some sort of federal funding. So. Sounds great. So um, let me ask you, from the parent perspective, did that give you a lot of peace of mind? <laughs> Yes. So <laughs> there was hesitance. much and I, I, I'm going to paraphrase what I think I'm seeing on your faces like, yes, and maybe not so much. <laughs> yeah, it's 
it's another it level. Me. It's not a, it's not an all encompassing. Now my child is safe by any means because it, right. you know, it, it, it is day to day. It can fluctuate regardless of proper treatment. And I think yeah. a lot of uh, what I've learned over the years is that unlike the adult population, a child with diabetes is also going through the uh, normal growth and development. So all the requirements for height, for weight, for nutrition, that constantly are changing. Yes, medications are constantly changing. And I mean, um, I had a nephew that just seemed to have a growth spurt of a couple of inches in a couple of days here. Had he been on medication based on a weight, you know, Mm -hmm. distribution in that, it it would have thrown it off completely. So I, I understand that that's even under the best of circumstances, it's not a guarantee everything's going to be well. I know. Pardon me. I'm not being rude. I just my speaking of uh, treating diabetes, I have to text my daughter to eat a few Skittles because her blood sugar is low. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Okay, I'm all done. No, um, that's great. That's yeah. Great. So, um, but yeah, no. It, that's what that's what I was alluding to, but I didn't want to give a. I didn't want to get. But I have seen kids carrying Skittles and jelly beans, and to tell mm-hmm. the untrained provider, not provider, but the, the teacher, the teacher's aid and that, that, that Skittles and jelly beans are going to be medical treatment here, not a, not an easy sell sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and I actually had the nurse, so the nurse that was brought in to train our staff, um, I was telling her, you know, Sarah is going to carry juice boxes and Skittles with her because that's what she prefers to treat her low blood sugars with. And the nurse was telling me, well, I think we need to think of a healthier option. (laughs) And I was like, I don't think you understand how glucose is digested. Like fruits and vegetable or fruits are fantastic, but they take longer to to digest than, you know, uh, uh, this, you know, candy that's as as close to glucose as you can get. Like that's going to be digested rapidly. And, you know, she kind of kept pushing and I'm like, I just, later I just told the teachers like I'm so sorry, but because in that moment you need what's gonna you need what's gonna bring their blood sugar up the quickest, and it's not necessarily gonna be a strawberry, <laughs> you know. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I, I'm looking at the clock, and I knew this yeah. was gonna happen. I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately, I'm time restrained here. So I do want to mention SugarMamasPodcast.com. I also have links that I'll put up for Facebook and Instagram. And then I'm going to send people over to see the latest in Sugar Mama's clothing available on Amazon here. (laughs) So it's been a pleasure meeting you here. If you'll stay on the line here, I just want to talk to you off, but I'm going to uh, close out this actual recording now. So again, thank you very much, Katie Roseboro. Oh, thank you, Maureen. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, so there you have it, a special showcase interview with my new best friend, Katie Rosenborough. So fortunately for me, that pretty much wraps up the timeline for today's show here. Again, this is a healthandhumorshow.podbean.com with a shout out as always to our sponsors at ukhealthradio.com, home of Health Triangle Magazine, and hamiltonradio.net out of Trenton, New Jersey with CEO and founder Jean Piero. A reminder, we are also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, Google Podcast and Audible, TuneIn, Pandora, and Spotify. I'll shout out to the teams at pedagogyeducation.com, which is an online learning campus for nurses to get their CEUs and CNEs, as well as our friends over at humoroutcast.com with CEO and founder Donna Kavanaugh 
as well as the teams at Good Music Africa and Shakedown Radio out of Australia. Again, I really want to give a shout out to Katie and her daughter, too, because she made this uh, a reality here. Um, it's so important that we understand and support families that are primary caregivers as well as parents nowadays um, when dealing with a chronic uh, medical condition here. Again, I tell everybody, head over to SugarMamasPodcast.com and enjoy um, just some wonderful information and education as we go along here. Um, as always, I tie in everything to my website, MaureenSullivanRN.com. Uh, check it out with links to books that I have written, as well as cross-promotions for other shows that I co-host, and <clears throat> health blogs, and so much more. Again, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a great week. I wish you all the same. This is your host, Maureen Sullivan. Have a great week. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you all back here next time for another installment of the Health and Humor Show. For now, stay healthy, stay happy, and most of all, stay tuned for the next entertainment-packed episode.